Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In the age where smartphones provide constant stimulation, many of us have forgotten what it feels like to experience the monotony of boredom. And while on the surface that might seem like a good thing, my guest today highlights research that not being bored can actually make us dumber and less creative. Her name is Manush Zamorodi. She's the host of the podcast Note to Self and the author of the book Bored and Brilliant, How Spacing Out Can Unlock Your Most Productive and Creative Self. Today on the show, Manoush shares her experience of how feeling scattered and less creative led her to create an experiment that tested whether her lack of boredom in recent years was to blame. We then dig into the philosophy of boredom and why we dread it so much. Manoush then goes into what the latest research says about the benefits of boredom, like increased creativity, more productivity, and improved mental well-being. And then she walks us through some exercises you can do to help inject a bit more boredom in your life. I know it's going to sound crazy and counterintuitive. Boredom is good for you, but it is. After the show's over, check out the show notes at awim.is slash boredom. Manoush Zamarodi, welcome to the show. Oh, Brett, thanks for having me. Uh, so you recently published a book, Bored and Brilliant, Rediscovering the Lost Art of Spacing Out. This was The impetus behind the book was this experiment you did with your, with your podcast. You're the host of Note to Self, um, WNYC. And uh, you had your listeners go through this experiment of kind of reevaluating the relationship with their digital devices. I'm curious, what was the impetus behind that experiment? Like, did you have a personal experience where you're like, I need to get a handle on how my devices control my life? Like a personal breakdown, Brett? Is that what you mean? Exactly. Um, Well, yes. The answer is absolutely yes. I mean, as you know, your job as a podcast host is to come up with great ideas for your show. And I, a couple of years ago, just had this moment where I was like, I felt just dried up, like there was nothing going on upstairs. It felt different than writer's block. It was more like a barrenness that I felt. And so I started to sort of try and think back, when had I had my best ideas in the past? And it was such a cliche. It was like, oh, it was when I was staring out the window on a long car ride, or it's, you know, when I didn't have kids and used to take long showers, you know, or um, it was when I used to push my kid's stroller. And I realized like in all those moments, what was not in my hand, it was my smartphone. And so 
I sort of thought that, and now every time I have a crack in my day, sort of a few minutes here, a few minutes there, whether it is waiting to get my coffee or waiting to get on the subway, what do I do? I look at my phone. I mean, we all look at our phones now. And so it sort of made me think like, oh, those moments in my day where I used to sort of space out, they were kind of boring. Maybe there was something actually super important going on. And actually, if I think about it, I really haven't spaced out or been bored since I got a smartphone because I never need to be. And it sort of made me sort of wonder, like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Right. And did you talk to other individuals like in your field of people you know who are you know creative types suffering from the same sort of like I don't have any good ideas anymore well for me you know I always go straight to my audience and my listeners have certainly taught me that whenever I am feeling something I am not that special I am not alone there are probably a lot of other people who are thinking the same thing and they started sort of you know stories started coming in about people sort of wondering what was happening to their brains when uh, they were looking at their phone all the time because I think and and what I realized was a, that a lot of the research is you know our experiences are vastly ahead of the research being done in any lab so by the time they sort of figured out what the long-term implications could be of looking at our smartphones all the time or never getting bored getting rid of a human emotion we may have been looking at these things you know at this point like over for a decade right I mean the first iPhone came out in 2007 so I think for me, it was sort of a, a wake-up call, like, whoa, we have to start asking these questions and try to answer them um, more quickly than we wait for a double-blind controlled study to come out that maybe is we do or, or don't believe. So, yeah, so I said to my audience, I was like, okay, how about for one week we try to tweak our smartphone habits? We see if we can get a little bit more boredom or spacing out back in our lives. And, and we see if it ignites something, if it jumpstarts our creativity or, or something else happens. And so we went on this, I mean, this journey where every morning they would wake up, they'd get a mini podcast uh, with the science sort of explaining either something uh, neurologically that was going on in their brains or how technology was designed to do something neurologically in their brains, and then a challenge to try and change their behavior for that day. And, and then they would report back. And, you know, at first I thought like, oh, I don't know, like a couple hundred people will do this with me. But we had 20,000 people sign up to do that one week. Um, they sort of gave us a week of their lives. And, um, and so the book is based on what I learned from that week, um, taking what listeners told me worked, what they told me didn't work, tweaking it, codifying it, and then combining it with a ton more research um, and interviews with cognitive psychologists, neuroscientists, marketers, uh, digital marketers, um, more more stories from people, uh, also technologists, and the data that we got from that week. Because uh, irony of ironies, we actually partnered with a couple apps that measured how much time people were spending on their phones. Um, and so we had a, a ton of data coming in that could show, you know, which days were more successful than others and what the final results were. That's awesome. And we'll, we're going to get into some of the science that you've uncovered and some of the data that you were able to uh, gather with this experiment. But you also, cool, like you get philosophical with boredom, right? Like I, that, people don't realize <laughs> that boredom, this is something that's been a conundrum for philosophers going back a couple millennia. So, I mean, What's the philosophical history of boredom? Like, what? how do philosophers describe boredom? There's two different kinds. There's situational boredom, where you're, oh, I wish that this, you know, play would end. But then there's the existential kind, where you're kind of like, 
whoa, what is this life that I'm living? And so I, you know, I think it's what you talk a lot about on the podcast is uh, this idea of looking for meaning and and trying to live a be- your best life sort of thing. Um, so it, it's, and it's not easy, right? It's not easy to confront um, the unknown and to think through what, what, what you're going to do next, but, but actually boredom can be very helpful with that. Right. So like how have researchers today, how have they described the feelings of boredom? Right. Cause it's like, we all kind of, we know what it feels like, but then I don't know how do you get more descriptive with that feeling. Is it like you'd rather be doing something else? Is it? Yeah. So, okay. So I think like for, well, first of all, I should say that we are at an extremely exciting um, moment in neuroscience, really, you know, in the last 10 years, what with fMRIs and the ability to sort of track how the brain and networks work, it's, it's really exciting. And so they've just started to really understand what happens in our brains when our mind begins to wander. And in, it turns out like, let's say you're folding laundry um, and you're doing something super repetitive that doesn't require you to actually think about your actions or, um, you know, just l- sitting and looking at the wall and spacing out, you activate a network in your brain called the default mode. And they now understand that in the default mode, that is when we do some of our most creative thinking, most original thinking. We take disparate ideas and then push them together and, and create, come up with new concepts. We create uh, a sense of self. It's self-referential processing, literally creating a coherent sense of ourselves. We do something called theory of mind, where we imagine what others are thinking. We develop empathy for them. And we do something that I found incredibly interesting called autobiographical memory and planning, which is when we look back at our lives, we sort of take note of the highs and the lows. We build a personal narrative. We take lessons from that. And then we look forward. We have something called perspective bias, look into the future, where we we build uh, what we imagine our lives could be, and we set ourselves goals, and we break down the steps that we need to take in order to reach those goals. So, you know, incredibly important things like, you know, you could argue that this is what makes humans human, um, this ability to to think of who am I, what what is my place in the world. Um, but it's also, you know, being bored is why do we look at our phone so much? Because being bored kind of sucks. Like it, it hurts at first. It's difficult. It is a painful process sometimes. Um, but I think it, it, it's it's getting through that initial period. And this is why I was so insistent because I did have listeners who were like, God, man, why do you have to use the word boredom? Couldn't you just use, go straight to daydreaming, use something a little more positive? And I was like, no, because I think we've lost the, this capacity to sort of sit through the yucky part. And that yucky part is you can't, you can't skip it. Like you must pass through it in order to get to the good stuff. And so my thinking was, no, let's, let's not vilify it in some way. It is not a disease to be bored. Um, it is actually something that maybe we need to name and get more of in our lives. Well, and speaking of how yucky feeling boredom is, you talk about the the links people will go to avoid boredom. Like you did, there, you mentioned this research, this study where people had the option to shock themselves. Oh my God, I love this research. It's yeah, it's it's really um, it's very famous in the psychological world, which is, it was by Tim Wilson at the University of Virginia, and he asked people to come sit in a room, and they could either just sit there and relax or they could shock themselves 
and you know sitting there like there was this was a very plain room like they made the room the most bored there was nothing to look at it had like really dull gray walls um and but rather than just sit there and be bored people um shocked themselves they one guy did it like 190 times like gave himself a zap rather than just sit there with their thoughts um so yeah so that's what I'm, that's a good one uh there's a lot of research about how just people and i i think it's interesting, like we're starting to see what happens, um, why we keep our smartphones out on the table when we are meeting someone for coffee, you know, because what happens like the minute the conversation gets boring or somebody uh, isn't quite concise uh, or, 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 you know, our phone buzzes, it's, it's great because who needs to be bored even when we're face to face with someone? But there's another study that says um, the quality of conversation goes down even if a phone is just within sight of two people having a conversation. Um, it's kind of a fascinating if you want to get into it about how they measured that. But um, but yeah, so this idea that the smartphone acts as sort of uh, uh, an interrupter of human connection. Right. I mean, because besides talking about how this the smartphones deprive us of boredom, and boredom is what allows us to do this mind-wandering and basically helps us create meaning in our lives, you talk about how the other ways the smartphone disrupts us, and that you talk about social connection. Yeah, how did they figure out? So, I mean, I thought that was interesting. Just the, the mere presence of a phone, even if it's silent, just like it messes conversation up. It makes people feel less connected. You gotta, you gotta love scientists, right? That they have to prove these weird things that you and I normal people like sense is kind of true. Like, I mean, we all know that when we go out to dinner, people have their phones out and they're sort of looking at them and stuff, but for them to prove it, they literally put people in like cafe settings and, um, measured had them have conversations and put the phone there and put it across the room or took it away and then had people, uh, sort of rank the quality of their conversation, which is really interesting. There is actually a boredom researcher, Dr. Sandy Mann at the, in the UK who used paper cups to, she got people extremely bored and then asked them to come up with different ways to use paper cups. Like, they came up with like plant holders or, you know, sandbox toys. But then when they got really, really bored, they started coming up with more creative ideas like a Madonna bra or earrings or musical instruments. And so, yeah, scientists have um, wonderful and and wonderful ways of proving what I sometimes think we are intuition uh, already knows. Right. And what's, what's, even scarier is like, what's this doing to kids, right? Because like, I think all of us who were alive before smartphones, like we know what it feels like to be bored. We know mm. that feeling, but like kids, like my, my children have been, they've been exposed to iPads since they were, you know, two or three. How old are your kids, Brett? Uh, six and four. Got it. Yeah. Well, you know, we've all seen the kid who picks up a device and knows immediately how to use it, right? Which is kind of, awesome and amazing that how quickly they pick things up. But I mean, to me, what you're describing, so we had a number of uh, classrooms across the country do the Board and Brilliant um, project uh, in together as classrooms. And also a bunch of colleges did it. Um, and I heard from one teenager who was like, I don't know, this feeling is really, I don't recognize it. it feels weird. I was like, what, like boredom? Um, and yeah, you're right. Like they, if you are, I don't know, a teenager and you have a smartphone and 
you may never have experienced boredom, which I find a little worrying and quite extraordinary. And as one teacher told me he, in Florida, I was like, so what were the cumulative effects of like doing the project together of changing your smartphone habits? And he's like, well, what I saw was actually more eye contact amongst the kids because I think they started to realize how much um, not only are they on their smartphones, personal smartphones, but actually the classroom this day to this day and age is, is mediated with screens. You know, they're on iPads in class. They're looking at smart boards. They are uh, on their computers. There's, there is not a ton of um, face-to-face interaction. And so for me, I think part of it is that younger people these days are extremely performative, right? They're, they're doing things for Instagram. They're, it's not that they're not acting. They're definitely acting. They're, they're doing things for Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat or whatever it might be. But it's those subtle effects, as, as Sherry talks about, like the combination of um, the way someone moves their hand and the way that they look at you or the pacing of their sentence and combining that all together. And that's when you really understand a human being, but it requires patience, right? Sometimes people don't, and Cherry talked about this with me, is that she found that her students really wanted to talk to her. They preferred email because they could uh, write their sentences, make them perfect, edit them before they got them to her. And she's like, no, because when you talk to me and I see when you stumble or you have a hard time explaining something or you work your way towards uh completing a thought or an idea in person, that's when I understand what you're going through and I understand better how I can help you. Um, and so, yeah, I think it, it's this patience with human fallibility or human mistakes that kids don't have to have because now they take a 10 pictures or, you know, and I do this too. I'm on Instagram, take 10 different pictures, choose the best one, put the best filter on it, find the best hashtag. And, and, oh my gosh, look at that. Look at my amazing life. It's awesome. You mentioned, well, yeah, speaking of, uh, you know, Instagram, one of the benefits of smartphones, we have a great camera with us pretty much at all times. And people take pictures all the time, but you highlight research that's actually hindering our ability to actually be in the moment, even remember this stuff we're taking pictures of. Yeah, this is super interesting research um, going at Fairfield University. And and the woman, Professor Linda Hankel, calls it the photo impairment effect. And this is basically the idea that when we go about our day and taking pictures all the time, um, we're outsourcing our memory. We're literally, literally saying to our brain, like, don't, you don't have to remember this. My camera's got it. Thanks. Um, which can be great if you are trying to remember, like, oh, don't forget you parked in section D13, you know, and you want to use that as a memory aid. But let's say you're spending a day at the beach and you've outsourced all your memory of your day with your family to your camera and you know, I, I know from my listeners and from a lot of people, we have thousands, thousands and thousands of these pictures that we don't usually actually go back and look at. She also found that w- one way to really not remember something is to put yourself in the photo because you start to look at yourself from a third person. You take yourself out of the moment um, in that you start to like, let's say you're you want to take a picture next to a statue. Um, if you're in the photo, you're thinking of what the photo is going to look like instead of actually being there next to the statue in the moment. But there was good news too from Professor Henkel, which is that if you want to improve your memory when you're taking photos, use uh, macro. Basically, 
smartphones do this really well, zoom in on a very specific detail. Really think through about how you're framing something and zoom right in and that will actually help you remember it better. So there is also the photo enhancement effect. But I just find it fascinating. I mean, we're, we're, I'm taking photos, like my, I just dropped my kids off after school. It's like the first day of school. And I was like, oh, I got to capture the moment, you know? <laughs> and it was like, um, my kids were like, please put the phone away. They hate it. They, they're they not, I mean, my kids are seven and 10. And I wonder if this is a generation who's going to be like, Ugh, stop taking photos already enough. Is that why taking selfies feels weird? Like I, I've never... Like, you know, because you, when you're in, once you're in the picture, like you look at it differently. Like I've, I think I've taken one selfie and I haven't done it again because it just made me feel weird. I, it is a weird feeling, right? Well, I think, you know, whenever I think of selfies, I think of what I learned about Snapchat, which, um, and I, I think this speaks to the technology about it being designed to make, really encourage the behavior of, of, and not to use the word addictive because the, the jury's out on whether it's addictive clinically or not. But um, do you know about Snapchat streaks, Brett? Oh, yeah, I do. Okay, so basically you start a streak with a friend and that means that every day you send each other um, a goofy selfie. And it sounds benign, right? Except that Snapchat gamifies it so that you collect points and uh, emojis and emoji stickers and trophies and those sorts of things. And it has also become a thing for kids where you're like, don't break the streak, right? Because if you break the streak, like let's say you're going for 300 days that you're sending these selfies back and forth. If you break the streak, that means that like, whoa, something happened and your friendship might be over. And so you start to think about... um, it just sort of combines all these things that we've been talking about, waking up, taking a selfie, taking yourself out of the moment when you could just kind of be lying in bed and and thinking about what you're going to do that day or maybe remembering a dream or whatever. But you wake up, you take a selfie, you put yourself in sort of looking at yourself, this performative aspect, you're collecting points, you're basing a friendship not on any sort of real eye contact either. Um, I mean, that's not to say that like Snapchat isn't fun and, and great. And, and, you know, as you know, from the book, like I am not anti-tech. I love my phone. I just don't think that the answer also is on or off. I'm not a fan of detoxes. I feel like, you know, what we're talking about is self-regulation, right? Is saying like, recognizing like, actually, I really like that first 15 minutes of my day to be, spent quietly or I've used my phone uh, enough. I'm starting to get that yucky feeling. Uh, I recognize this feeling and I, I need to put it away and, and make some time for something else. Yeah. I mean, there was going on that track there. You, you interview some like monks of some, I can't remember if they're Zen or they were Catholic, um, but they use social media. They use smartphones and uh, you asked them like, so I, I, how can you do this? You know, what's going on there? And they basically said, it's just, it's like a distraction, like any other distraction, like a distracting thought, right? And like that really convicted me because I always, I put up these like crazy tools to make sure I don't check websites at a certain time when I think like, okay, I should be a little more mindful. I don't need all this stuff. I just need a little self-regulation. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a, as many people in the industry say like, oh, well, the technology is not making you, you know, check Twitter a million times a day. And I kind of disagree with that. I think, you know, right now the business model uh, for most of these platforms and apps is our is our attention. It's that phrase, attention economy, that we are paying um, for 
with for these services with our eyeballs every day in and out. And so that's why they want you to keep coming back. I mean, yes, Facebook wants to connect you with people you love, but they also want you to spend time with them on the Facebook platform. You can't pay for Facebook even if you want to. Um, and so as they collect our behavior and parse it and turn it into dossiers of data that they then sell on to advertisers, um, I think we have to question, you know, what is our time worth? I think it 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 needs to it, and it's not your fault if you feel like you're coming back over and over again to the Instagram. These 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 platforms are built to make you do that. It is their business model. But, you know, similar to sort of like cigarettes, when we started to understand that um, these companies were not being completely honest about the effects of, of, you know, and I'm not saying all tech companies have like malicious intentions, but I think that we have to be more honest about what the business model is and, and how we are sort of um, paying with our time and with our personal information for these things. Right. Well, I mean, there are some companies that are sort of, I know there's a company called Dopamine. I mean, that's what it's called. And like they basically, yeah, they help apps learn how to be more addictive. So they have, they, they know, you know how to tweak algorithms to send updates at certain times. So the app becomes more something that people wants to want to check. You know, and and like as podcast listeners or makers rather, you and I like, you know, what do we want people to do? We want listen people to listen to our shows. Um I, I told and and I have ads on my show. So like this I, I I'm I understand that this is an issue, but I think we need to be more sort of um upfront about it. And, and explain to kids how these things are made and built and paid for so that they are making smarter, wide-eyed, open uh, choices for themselves. Speaking of like, you don't like detoxes, I like how you highlight this summer camp where, you know, most summer camps, they have like this like strict no technology rule, right? No devices. They When you get there, they're going to take your smartphone, put it in a, you know, a safe for the rest of the summer. But this one summer camp decided, no, let's have like anything goes. You can bring your device, et cetera. Why did they do that? And what were they hoping to, what were they hoping to accomplish with that new rule? Oh, I love this guy. So it's a camp called Long Acre Camp. It's actually in Western Pennsylvania, really rural. And this camp has been in this guy, Matt Smith is his name. He's the camp director. It's been in his family for 40 years. And he was just sort of thinking, you know, what the purpose of the camp, they call it Long Acre Leadership Camp. And, you know, he was like, well, what is leadership in this day and age? It's understanding how to... Um, to sort of set goals and and be a good example to other kids, right? And he's like, so this whole, what are kids mostly thinking about right now? They're mostly thinking about their smartphones, whether it's games or social media or whatever. But he was seeing that taking away the smartphones at summer camp, what would happen? They would just go home and then get back on their devices and nothing would change. They wouldn't have learned um, any better habits or ways of self-regulation. It was, again, back to the on or off switch. So he was like, you know, if there's one safe place where you should be able to sort of experiment with your behavior or try out new things, um, it should be summer camp. So he had kids come to camp and the first week they had to turn in their phones and they had to go like, you know, tech free. And they all got to know each other. And, you know, this way that people could make friends and all those sorts of things. And then he was like, okay, after the first week, he gave the phones back to the kids. And as one girl told me, you know, she must have been 14. She was like, 
all hell broke loose. People grabbed their phones. They curled up in like various like cabins and corners. And she said she felt like she had fallen into like a time machine. Like she completely lost track of time. She went on all her social media thing, um, things. She was seeing what all her other friends were doing in other places and it kind of made her feel bad. Um, she also like didn't talk to her friends who were there with her that she'd made at camp. And and all the kids came back together and they sort of, you know, he and Matt, I give him a lot of credit for this. He sort of let them figure out what should the rules be for themselves. And, um, and so they sort of started to figure it out that you started to get dirty looks if you were on your phone too much. Or pe- some people said, you know what, I don't want my phone and gave their phones back to the camp leader. They were like, actually, I like the way things were before. Um, so I think the idea being that like, not only at the end of camp should you have gotten a ton of exercise and fresh air and made new friends, but if you take back new life skills, that you understand your own behavior better, that you know when to use your smartphone so that it helps you, that it's like a tool rather than like a taskmaster, then he felt like, you know, that was his job as someone who works with young people to help them to do that. And, and you know, I think about when I was like 13 years old, there's no way that I was being asked to regulate my own behavior like kids are today. Mine was like, should I go for a bike ride? I guess so. You know, maybe we snuck some cigarettes on the golf course or something like that. But these kids have incredibly powerful tools in their hands and and parents who don't know how to use them that much better than they do. And what we're asking for is a generation to grow up a, a lot faster than I think we previously had to, which I guess happens every generation. The difference being, though, that this tool is being updated constantly and personalized to each of us all the time. I think that's what makes it different than like when cars were a thing or the radio came out or TV was a thing. These tools are constantly being updated to hijack our attention and to keep us coming back. And they are personalized to us and they know everything about us. Yeah, that's scary. When you stop and you think about it, you have that existential moment that Amazon and Google Facebook knows so much about you. So if you don't recommend, you know, quit cold turkey, social media detox, et cetera, like what are some just brass tacks things that you found that worked with yourself and your listeners on sort of getting a handle on their their technology use? Yeah. So actually we turned it into a seven step thing. And what I tried to do was make it so that um it, it sort of takes an aspect of all the things that we talked we've talked about and and tries like a little tweak. So for example, um day three, you know, for is called photo free day. And the idea is like, don't take any photos that day. And for young people, that is extremely challenging to go for a day um, without taking photos. But from what we heard from them, um, you know, it literally, they were using their eyes differently, they were seeing and experiencing the world differently. And, and I think anybody can try a day, right? You know, one day is all we're asking you to do. And as one professor put it to me, he's like, you know, I felt like my my students had been talking about this. They knew that like these things were happening to them, but they didn't have the like the the permission and the very specific structure to try um, a change. And so I think by saying like, we've tested this, here's what, here are the rules just for one day, try no photos all day long, and then observe your own behavior. And what we have since seen, um, or, or day three, delete the app, that app, take the app that is driving you bonkers bananas. We all have that one app, take it off your phone just for the day. And like one guy said to me, this was when we, he first did the project. He's like, actually, I've taken 
six apps off my phone. I was like, all right, dude, whatever you need to do. He took off Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and Twitter and I don't know, whatever else. And um, he got back in touch last week, actually. And he was like, I, after that one day, I decided to always keep them off my phone. He didn't, you know, kill his accounts. He just decided that he preferred using them on a laptop because then he would just keep track of the time that he spent there and it didn't turn into a time suck. And he also started to realize that for him, he said, I think he said nine times out of 10 when I'm on Facebook, I feel bad about my life. And I don't really want to feel that way. I feel pretty good about it when I'm not on there. And so for, for him, it was a permanent change. But there were other people who said like, oh, actually, I like not having Twitter on my phone. I'm going to do it once a month just to remind myself that I'm in charge of Twitter. It's not in charge of me. And so I think what we're doing is just saying like these little tweaks can actually make big changes in your life. And and the neuroscience explains why they make big changes in your life. So just try it. See what happens. Yeah. What was your app that you deleted? Oh, my God. Two Dots. Do you know that game? I don't know that game. I read about it, but I don't know what it is. I am not a gamer. This dot, this, this dots, this dot spread, this game just became like my scotch and soda. You know, like I would put the kids to bed and just play this stupid game for like three hours. And I, I was ashamed of myself. Like I'd hide it from my husband. I felt like, God, I could be learning like a new language. No, I'm connecting dots in this game. Um, and so I actually confronted the maker of the game and I was like, man, you're ruining my life. And he's like, well, you know, you have to be able to put it down and figure it out. I was like, yes, but but I, I, I can't, you know? And then I, I tried to convince myself that I was actually increasing my spatial awareness and getting better at other um I don't know. I thought like maybe it was helping me in some way. And so I reached out to some people who are specifically studying games who were like, yeah, no, you're not like, you're not moving through the world more efficiently. You're just getting better at connecting virtual dots on your screen. That's what you're getting better at. So, um, so I took it off my phone um, for a long time, but then I, uh, I have a, quite a confession to make. I did put it back, uh, but for science, Brett, for science, for science, of course. <laughs> so so what happened after you put it back on? Well, okay, so here's the story is I was talking to game designer um Jane McGonigal. She's at the Institute for the Future. She's awesome. And she, I was telling her like um I had a flight. I'm a nervous flyer and I had a really long flight to go on. And she's like, "Well, you know what you could do? There are ways of using games productively. You could put two dots back on your phone." I was like, "What? Really?" She's like, yeah, like, what's the alternative that, like, you drink your way to Australia or you, you know, take a sedative or, like, she's like, we don't, why, why go that direction when just playing two dots takes you out of a situation and calms you? She's like, I think that that's a fair use situation. And, and she told me also about a lot of other research about ways that we can use games um, more productively. So the research is starting to show that, like, if you are trying not to be um, to drink or not to smoke or compulsively eat 10 minutes playing a game, you know, you got to set a timer though. You got to set a timer. 10 minutes is an optimum length. Or if you are trying to switch gears mentally and, and calm yourself down, 20 minutes is an optimum length. I mean, it's, it's all very nascent research, but I think the point is with all these things, it's not good or bad or on or off. It's like, ways it's it's subtle it's there are ways to use these things so that they help you they 
and they don't hurt you. And, and that's hard to do. You have to be very um, purposeful about your habits, which is tough. We're all busy, you know? Yeah, that was the big takeaway from this book was that technology isn't bad. You just have to be mindful about it and all everything you do with yeah. it. Yeah. Did you, did you make any changes, Brett? I got I to gotta ask Have you. I made any? Well, no. So like I, so my personal thing is I, I have like these crazy setup on my laptop. I use this app called, uh, what's it called here? Find Focus. It's for Mac. And so I set it to where I can only access like Twitter and like my, you know, my dumb sites, my, like my dorking around sites is what I call them. Every 45 minutes I can access them for 15 minutes. And then so for 45 minutes I can do whatever. And then I have like a device on my, my Android called app block. So it blocks me from Instagram until like four o'clock. So I, I, I'm, I'm one of those people, like I, I'd rather add constraints then self-regulate. Because I feel like self-regulation can also exhaust you mentally. So I just won't even have to worry about it. But I think that's really interesting to me because like you are somebody who is super tech savvy. You, you know, you put out a podcast, you're in this world, right? But what was surprising to me was how many people don't know the basics, like how to turn off notifications on their phones or change the settings. And like the idea of somebody installing more technology to help them deal with their technology blows some people's minds. They're like, wait, what? <laughs> so I think, you know, we, we are in the minority. The majority is struggling and, and has no idea uh, maybe not no idea, I want to give them more credit than that, but is struggling and is looking for very simple non-tech ways to make change. Um, right. So well, another, another like just simple way that I kind of came across and I experimented with last week was when I didn't want to use my phone, I would just turn off Wi-Fi and mobile data. And so I could get text messages and I can call, but I couldn't do anything else. And even just like going through that hassle, like, oh, I want to check Instagram. Okay, I got to turn on my mobile. Like even the, ha the hassle of that sort of like, okay, it's not even worth it. So I don't do it. Yeah, like I set up little roadblocks for myself too. Or I put um, apps that I shouldn't really be using. I'll put them in a folder called productivity um, just to be like, are you really being productive? <laughs> like just little like moments where I sort of mess with myself to remind myself like actually, you know, or even... You know, I used to think that the best use of my time was answering all my email on the ride home. But actually, having written this book and done the research, I am better off like staring at people's shoes all the way home. The chances of me coming up with a better idea um, or solving a problem or even just being, you know, more available to my children and maybe making them a dinner that I've you know, I would have like ordered pizza. And I came up with an idea for a healthy dinner. Like that is far more productive and creative. Um, yeah, maybe I'll have more emails to answer in the morning, but like in the I, I kind of, we got to play the long game, right, man? <laughs> you know, it's a, I know something I, I did too is like, and one of the things you suggest is like notice how you spend your time with your devices and g email on my phone. I notice that I read it, but I don't answer it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll wait till I get home on my laptop and then I'll answer it. And so I'm like, what's the point of having email on my phone? So I'm thinking about just deleting my email app because like it doesn't do anything for me. Well, that would be radical. I would love to hear what happens. You might get a lot of people who are pissed off at you who are like, man, don't you read your email? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I read it on my phone and then I'll wait two hours, you know, when I'm back at my laptop to answer. Because I, I don't answer, I don't, for some reason, like I don't like typing on the phone with my thumbs. So... I think that makes perfect sense. Like if you want to send someone a coherent response, it helps to have a keyboard. Absolutely. 
<laughs> well, Manush, what's going on with the experiment? So, I mean, right now, has it just been broken down into steps that people take? Are you still doing, you still running the experiment gathering data on your listeners? Yeah. So the latest is um, in the book, we lay out the, I, I sort of took what I learned when we did the first project with the 20,000 people in 2015. I took all that, took all the feedback, added more research and interviews and turned it into sort of the seven sort of steps you can take. Um, and one of the apps that we initially partnered with, it's called Moment. Um, it's a great guy, he, software developer who's just did this as a side project for himself. He lives in Pittsburgh. He has turned, uh, he's created a bored and brilliant program in the app. So you can um, download the app moment. There's a bored and brilliant site uh, within it that you can sign up for. It'll guide you through the steps while also measuring how many times a day you pick up your phone just to check it and how many minutes a day you spend on your phone to see if it is effective for you. Um, but I should say like in the original project, we only collectively, we only shaved six minutes off our daily phone usage. Um, and I was really bummed. I was like, what? Everyone's telling me they're having this amazing experience. How is it possible that we only cut down six minutes? But then I went back to the neuroscientists and the cognitive psychologists, and they just kind of laughed at me. They were like, do you know how difficult it is to change people's behavior, much less do it in one week? The fact that people felt um, so um, passionately that they were willing to sign up for this project for a week and that they reported back in our survey results that 90% of them felt that they had more power over their phone, um, that was an incredible feat that people felt that they had the ability to master their phone as opposed to being um, dictated to by it. Um, and so really, to me, it's also the stories that are peppered throughout the book of people's changes that they've made in their lives. Um, some of them are, you know, small, like one woman told us that now she like goes up and down the subway stairs when she's waiting for the subway to get a cardio workout instead of looking at her phone. But then like another woman, a, this woman in Wisconsin, um, she was going through a breakup when Bored and Brilliant happened um, and she had to decide whether to sell the farm or not. And she decided to keep it. And now once a month, she opens it up to the community in Wisconsin and she has something called Make Time where people come to the farm, they hand over their devices, they can take a nap. Some people bring their sewing machines, other people paint. Um, she decided that for her, not only was she going to be a farmer, but that she was going to turn it into a place where her community could come together to do some creative thinking and problem solving. So that she renamed her farm, the Make Time Farm, which is kind of amazing. So lots of really interesting stories. Right. And that story wouldn't have happened unless she was bored, right? She got the idea. Exactly. She was bored. Well, Manoush, this has been a great conversation. Besides a uh, note to self, where else can people find out about your work in the book? Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm on book tour. I'm doing, we're doing a lot of other fun things with our listeners. I'm at manoushz.com and the podcast is um, note to self radio.org. Uh, come join us and check us out. Uh, we're having a lot of fun and, and rethinking, how we live in this crazy, accelerating world. Fantastic. Manoush Zamarodi, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brett. My guest today is Manoush Zamarodi. She's the author of the book, Bored and Brilliant. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also check out our podcast, Note to Self. Just check it out on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever else you listen to podcasts. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash boredom, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you've gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate if you just take one quick minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. can live out your master chef dream when you find a professional on angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well visit angie.com you can do this when you angie that